One in five department stores need to be shut down to return to the state they were a decade ago. In other words, making the kind of money they were a decade ago, making money in some cases. Um, Which means if they don't close some of these, the story goes, some will be at risk. Because if these stores, if you don't close some of these, the ones that aren't making any money, the ones that are costing you money, are are sucking money out of the company, the bigger company, the chain, it could pull everybody down. So the idea behind this is if you're going to create a once again healthy department store industry, 20% of department stores are, should be or should be at least considered to be closed. It's a bit of a shocking number because no matter what mall you go to, there are always going to be one or two or three anchor tenants that are generally the big department stores. And so if you were to suddenly have a bunch of these pull out and companies shut down their big stores in the malls, pull out those anchor tenants, there would be less foot traffic going through the mall because fewer people are walking through there. And if there's fewer people, that is fewer shoppers for the other stores. Plus, you would expect that the rent for those other stores would have to go up to pay for the missing anchor tenant that was paying a fair chunk of the cost of the entire mall, right? It's a trickle-down bit of economics. Maybe not Ronald Reagan's trickle-down economics, but it is a trickle-down form of economics that sounds like it could affect an awful lot of people, an awful lot of businesses, an awful lot of things. Is it correct? Are these suggestions correct, or is this complete panic on behalf of the Wall Street Journal? Well, Marvin Ryder, who I know has been very busy today, he was on with Bill Kelly early this morning. We're making it a morning and evening bookend here on 900 CHML. Joins me now, Marvin, you have been talking about department stores and the difficulties and this kind of thing for decades now. Mm-hmm. Really, it's ever since I started teaching 30 years ago, uh, as I'll call it a pundit, as you look at this whole thing, what consumers tell us is that department stores have one bit of uh, niceness, that's that they're handy, sort of one-stop shopping. I can go in there and get clothing. I can go in there and get sporting goods. I can go in there and get kitchen items. But the problem is that often the items that are being sold are not the very best in class. So let's say I need a bicycle. I can get a bicycle at at Walmart or at uh, Sears, but it isn't the top of the line of bicycle that I want. And so what we've seen over the last 30 years is people going more to specialty stores. And that gave us rise to the shopping mall. Even though you're correct, many shopping malls have department stores as anchor tenants. What they really do is replicate all the departments of a department store, but now they've got the best of breeds. So, oh, clothing, you need Abercrombie and Fitch or Hollister, we've got that at the mall. You want uh, the high-end golf equipment, we've got that at the mall, or whatever it happens to be. So we've seen, and and the road has been littered. Uh, uh, I'm an old guy. You're still quite a young man. But in my (laughs) lifetime, Woolco has disappeared. Zellers has disappeared. Kmart has been in trouble. Um, The old Woolworth store, the old Five and Dime, uh, Stedman's, a whole group of these stores that we've seen in deep trouble. And today, one of the big ones is Sears that is really struggling to keep going. So the story that was published in the Wall Street Journal isn't actually their own research. There was another company, uh, Green something or other, who uh, did this research. And here's what they did. They took the sales per square foot of department stores in 2006, and then inflation adjusted that number, saying, okay, if a dollar in 2006, what's a dollar worth today? Then the sales per square foot should be X. And of course, it's not quite X as we've gone. Sales have gone up in department stores, but they haven't kept up 
with inflation. And so then they said, well, if we then take a look at the gap between what they should be, if we inflation adjust the numbers and what they are today, this is how they come up with the 20%. The comeback from the uh, department stores is it's not just quite that simple because even if the sales per square foot in the stores has not kept up with inflation, in the last 10 years, almost all of these department stores have come out with an online version of these stores. So you can go to Sears.ca or Sears.com, and they argue that without the brick-and-mortar store where you can go and pick up your purchase or return it easily, their online ventures wouldn't be that great. So if we suddenly closed 20% of the stores and lost 20% of the contact with customers, uh, yes, we could get our our brick-and-mortar sales back to normal, but our online stuff would be heard at the same time. And so it, it isn't just quite as simple as people want to project. I think this I think this company, and I, I don't know enough about this green group to, to speak to them, but you know they had an axe they wanted to grind. It's a bit like, say, a Trump supporter wants to tell you something bad about Ted Cruz. We have to take it with a little bit of grain of salt. You do raise something, though, that I find really interesting about this, and, and it's not just department stores, but certainly they would fall into the, the category. They are, when you go to a lot of malls, they are the biggest tenant, and that means, I would assume, for most of them, the most expensive tenant. They're paying the highest rent, maybe not per square foot, but overall. They have now online presence, and I'm wondering at this point, if you are a Sears or you're another company is looking at this, how much do you need to have that brick and mortar or could you make it go with taking a lot of your overhead away just by saying we're going to become much more heavily the just internet, the online store? Mm-hmm. And there isn't an easy answer to that question, Scott. So if we take a look at Sears specifically, uh, they do this analysis all the time. And in fact, for this summer, they've announced that they're going to be closing, and I think it's 40 to 50 store locations in the United States, that there's too much redundancy in that area excuse me, they already cover that area with some other stores, so we don't need this location or that location. And Sears itself has seen its sales going down, so they need to fight back. Now, on the other hand, the Bay or Nordstrom, or at the very highest of the high end, uh, something like a Macy's or a, um, uh, um, well, those sort of stores, the, the, I'm trying to think of the one we have in Canada here at the high end on Bay Street, but I'll think of it in a minute. Those sort of stores have actually held their own. But for someone in the middle, and this is the big dilemma, do you go downstream and attack Walmart, which is a very basic kind of product. You're not really catering to your top 10% income earners. They're just nice basic products. What Walmart has done is, is said, we're going to add grocery products. We're going to make it more of a one-stop shop. And they seem to be doing not too badly. At the high end, the Bay has said, we're not going to cater to that basic stuff. You're not going to get basic underwear and socks here. We're going to carry Ralph Lauren, or we're going to carry Calvin Klein. We're going to go upscale. And it's those people who are stuck in the middle, and that's where Sears is. They're not really at the high end, and they're not exactly at the lowest end, and they're the ones that seem to be the biggest trouble today, and those are the ones that may have to move at some point. This is obviously a study that was done uh, by this company. It's called Green Street uh, for the Wall Street Journal in the States. But is there any reason to believe the same general principle wouldn't exist here in Canada? Well, there's a couple of things. So the United States went a little a bit more mall crazy than we have in Canada. And there are great examples of very large malls in the United States sitting empty today. We don't really have that in Canada. So there was a time... And I can't quite tell you what year it was. Was it the 80s or the 90s or even early 2000s? That they probably overdeveloped the shopping mall industry, and these anchor stores probably got themselves overexposed. And now, as they cut back, there are instances of very large malls sitting completely empty. 
Uh, now, this isn't quite the same scale, but I visit a, a small town called Palm Springs, California, and they have this lovely suburban mall just sits there collecting dust. It's, it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And that's a small scale. There are bigger ones around. We don't really have that in Canada. But the, the flip side of that story is true. You know, we had Target that failed. They had 132 locations across Canada, and not all of them have been put back to use. Uh, if we look up in Ancaster, for instance, the target there is undergoing some renovation at the moment, but that's been more than a year later. It will probably open this fall. I'm not just sure what's moving in there. That was a lot of retail space they gave up, and it couldn't all go back into circulation immediately. Uh, Loblaws has been announcing an expansion, uh, 50 stores this year. There were 50 stores last year that Loblaws opened. So, you know, you, you have to pick and choose your battles, and you want to go where the people are. Another good example of this is Milton. Milton grows at the rate of 5% a year in terms of its population. To put that in context, Hamilton grows at about two-thirds of a percent a year. Milton is the fastest-growing community in Canada, so you can see a need to open some new retail stores there, whereas Hamilton, it's not bad growth, but it's not dramatic growth. We're probably easily accommodated where we are. So it's not a one-size-fits-all problem, but the general trend is still there. The, the variation to the mall issue is the big box issue. So where we saw people go mall crazy in the United States, and then we had these big box stores. And what they do, they, they also create sort of an anchor. So you've got a Home Depot located someplace, let's say. And then there are smaller stores that locate in a power center around it. We have both examples here in Hamilton. Uh, we have Lime Ridge, which is a standard mall. But if you look at the, the, uh, the mall on center, or whatever they call it, the correct combination of words, uh, that's really a collection of big box stores in Ancaster and the Meadowlands collection of big box stores. They do seem to be holding their own, and consumers still want the convenience of one-stop shopping, but at the same time they want the brand names that come with those specialty stores. You have touched on the fact that you, that a lot of these department stores that have had one of the difficulties they face is they're trying to be everything to everybody. I think you right. said right off the top, you can go in and pretty much get whatever you want, not necessarily the level of thing you want, but the, all that stuff is there. Right. Why, though, and I'm picking out two, there may be others that you could bring to mind, why has Walmart and Costco been so effective at doing exactly that? They have everything for everybody, where some of these other ones have had such a challenge doing that. Mm -hmm. Well, first, both of those stores you mentioned, Walmart and Costco, do compete an awful lot on price. And so people who are terribly price sensitive are attracted. The difference between Costco and Walmart is volume. You know, if you want some ketchup, you can still go into a Walmart and buy a 750-milliliter bottle of ketchup. You go to Costco. 750 gallons. Right. You have a keg you've got to take home. Uh, so, you know, they position themselves in that way with the volume. And I'll, here's a true confession for you here on a, on a Tuesday night. I'm not, I'm not a shopper at Costco. I, I live by myself. I just don't buy the volumes to justify an annual membership. That's another funny thing. As much as you save money shopping at Costco, you have to buy a membership to save that money, you spend 100 bucks up front, hopefully you're going to save more than that over the course of the year. Walmart's a little different. So there is room for these bargain retailers, and that's really, again, the question uh, for a Sears. Do you go downstream and try to take on a Walmart? We saw Target try to do that and fail because they didn't offer any other value to the consumer. That's the other trick. So Costco offers the other value because they've got a gas station there. They, they have other kinds of goods that you can buy in quantity. So the product assortment is slightly different. There is room for that low-end player, but there's not room for a lot of them in that marketplace. So just before we let you go, if, if, this, if this story, if this study was ever to get any traction, and if some of the department stores were to b agree with what is being said here, right. 
And if it was to spill into Canada, if Canada started to lose some of the anchor tenants in some of the malls, and let's use Lime Ridge as the example, what impact would that actually have? Would the malls survive if the anchor tenants were to go away? Could the other stores still make a go of it? Or would that be a, a, a devastating effect on them? Right. So in the setup, you made that suggestion that if these anchor tenants go away, of course, that would negatively impact the mall, that volumes would go down. That's not actually what we see. If It depends upon the mix of the stores inside the mall. But if people view those smaller specialty stores as being important enough, you can lose an anchor tenant and not necessarily lose volume immediately. Now, over the long term, the lack of a tenant or basically a big store sitting empty does kind of cloud a mall. So let's say I'm trying to be a more higher-end mall. If I can think of Maple View, they try to you know, position themselves as sort of a fashion mall. If I had a big place sitting empty for two or three or five years, it would cast a pall. But what we're finding is these malls are very good at repurposing space. If I can again use the Target example, some of those malls that had a big Target, they say, okay, people, we've now got 100,000 square feet to rent. We would like to sell uh, rent it as one big store, but if there's no market for that, we're quite prepared to put in some aisles and create some new entrances and sell it as four stores of 25,000 square feet or 10 stores of 10,000 square feet, and they are willing to repurpose. And so stores that have lost an anchor, the traditional sense of an anchor, but have within their specialty stores that create volume and create traffic, they do survive, and they do survive quite well. And that's the trick. It really is that mix. So if you've got, again, the Aero Postal, the Abercrombie & Fitch, if you've got those little specialty shops that still attract people, you can weather the loss of an anchor. Yeah, because it seems like Jackson Square is an example. When things went south there with the anchors going, it completely, for a lot of years, fell apart. Other ones have, other places have done better at holding on. Yeah, now I'll, I'll give you my bias around Jackson Square. When they lost the anchors, and I looked at the stores that remained, I really thought Jackson Square should reposition itself as a value mall. So bring in outlet stores, focus on the cheaper end, and also really appeal to that market that was downtown uh, that we had, people who, who don't have the same economics who can shop at a Lime Ridge Mall. They didn't decide to do that, and I think this is why they struggled for a while. But fortunately for them, uh, with the addition of nations now, and sort of a rediscovery by some of the new Canadians located in the downtown area, and also some stores in Jackson Square that really do cater to those new Canadians. So, for instance, if you're someone from Southeast Asia, and you're looking for candy that, that is reminiscent of that area you came from. There's a lovely shop in there called Do Re Mi. It's candy I've never heard of before, but if you've come from Korea or Japan or China, those are the brands you grew up with. You're thrilled to find them. By repositioning to target the people who'd moved into that area, it's now had a renaissance and is starting to come back quite nicely. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Anytime, Scott.